Hello and welcome to the first episode of Wither the Luniversity. I'm Adam Elwanger and uh, with me today is uh, my friend, the victorious Charles Nagy, um, once and future uh, associate professor of psychology at the University of Central Florida. And we're going to talk today a little bit about uh, the ordeal that he's been through and um, the state of the American University generally. Welcome, Charles. I'm going to give an introduction to you. Um, you're associate professor, newly again at uh, University of Central Florida. You're the author of White Shaming, subtitled Bullying Based on Prejudice, Virtue Signaling, and Ignorance. Um, I was excited to talk to you. One reason I thought you'd be a great first episode is because obviously your case is very timely right now, but also um, people who, who know me might know that I'm a, a right winger and you are not. You, um, you are uh, not a leftist, you know, um, and I figured you'd have uh, an interesting perspective on these things. So I wonder if you could start by just telling us a little bit about your academic training. You know, where did you study? When did you complete your studies? Um... Okay, thank you for having me on here. Uh, I'm from Houston, Texas, but I got my bachelor's degree from California State University Fullerton in psychology. And that included spending a year at University of Madrid in Spain. And then, uh, Got my master's and PhD in clinical psychology from Texas A&M University. And then from there, I, I was an assistant professor at the University of Texas. It was called Pan American at the time, down in Southern Texas, and was there for four years and then 22 years at the University of Central Florida before I got fired. <laughs> So um, what is your research focused on? I mean, we know that you are in psychology, but before all the incident it, during sort of normal academic circumstances, what would you say is, how would you describe the work that you do? My research focused on the psychological well-being of ethnic and sexual minorities with a little bit of a focus specifically on Hispanic Americans and Hispanics, even outside the United States but not exclusively Hispanics. But so psychological well-being in a broad way of ethnic and sexual minorities. Okay, great. Um, so you and I met uh, when I was uh, recruiting signatories for an open letter um, that vowed non-compliance with uh, academic wokeness. And since then we've, we've had some dinner in Florida, we've talked occasionally. Um, and you've had about two very bad years and about uh, one very good week. Um, so I wonder if you could just sort of take five, ten minutes, however long you need, and, and tell us the story, you know, uh, get us caught up. Okay, I'll try to be brief. So I'm a data-driven social scientist. I have no agenda. Wherever the data takes me, I go. And in various ways, I'm a minority too. So I'm pro-minority, pro-equality. Mentor, I've mentored hundreds of minorities over the 30 years, almost 30 years of being a full professor, full-time professor, I should say, excuse me. Um, anyway, so because I do take a critical look, not a negative look, a critical look, 
of all the different ethnic groups, the good and the bad and the ugly, including for whites in my classes and in my book, White Shaming, and on Twitter. Uh, the week that George Floyd died, I said some critical things. I don't think they're bad uh, on Twitter. And suddenly a social mob of various groups descended upon me and the University of Central Florida demanding I be fired. I wasn't worried about it too much. I have tenure, I have the first amendment, we have academic freedom. So I just thought it was just gonna be, I thought UCF, University of Central Florida where I work would do the performative apologizing and groveling and distancing themselves from me and I, I didn't care. Uh, and then they, they launched, a, they started investigating me, including my entire 22 year history at UCF, put me through a, a two day, nine hour total interrogation by their director of office of institutional equity, which supposedly is there to make sure no discrimination occurs, but it really is a weaponized office enforcing diversity, equity, and inclusion. So they took six months. I kept on teaching. They kept me in the dark, wouldn't tell me what's going on. I thought they were just trying to buy time so that the crowd that were upset would forget about me and move on. But then six months later, they let me know they were terminating me in seven business days. And they gave me a laundry list of reasons why they were firing me. And it was all nonsense from my point of view. They kept saying it was, they kept say, telling the, the public that they fully support free speech. That's not the issue here, nothing to see here. They support free speech. So they don't care about my Twitter comments. They're, getting, they're going after me for classroom misconduct. And yet they were firing me for one among other reasons was because supposedly I bribed a healthcare worker in South America when I was on vacation nine years ago. How in the hell is that classroom misconduct? Uh, and so the, the, even though like there really was about nine different reasons they gave for firing me, probably the biggest reason was according to them, my comments in class, my cross-cultural psychology class, which is a controversial class, I concede. My comments were offensive and therefore constitute harassment slash discrimination. Now, to be clear, they, they actually solicited these complaints, right? Yes, that, thank you for reminding me of the story. <laughs> um, early on in June of 2020, when my Twitter scandal happened, which was one week after George Floyd's death, and after the mob descended upon UCF demanding I be fired, <clears throat> UCF did this massive campaign using every social media, every email, everything they can to solicit complaints about me, about me discriminating in class. They contacted my students from the past two years of my classes, asking them to report on me any incidents of discrimination. So I've taught over 30,000 students, and that sounds outrageous, and it is, but it's true. 30,000 students in the 22 years 
I've worked at UCF. Why? Because they shift 450 students in a class, okay? Um, anyway, so a couple of hundred students came forward and either made up outright lies about me, saying things, I'll give you an example, that I say in class that white people are superior to blacks because whites have a cerebral cortex and black people don't have one, which is utter, it's a pure lie. Never says anything that comes close to that. So half of the things the students were claiming were either outright lies or they taken something I've said and twisted it just a little bit to make it sound more sinister than it really was. And, and you were not furnished with the substance of these complaints, right? That's they right. Just, That's so right. they solicited them. They sort of, uh, you know, arranged their attack on you based on the contents of these. And then basically when they, you know, interviewed you, they, they just popped these on you and said, well, this person said this, right? So you had absolutely no time to prepare for this, right? That's correct. And the, the two-day, nine-hour total interrogation just peppered me with, did you say this comment in 2014? And I'd try to answer as honestly as I could. I don't remember, by the way, what I said last week, <laughs> six years ago. Did you say this comment in 2005? Did you say this comment in 2012? And it just went on and on and on. And I'll, about over 100 different questions like that, there were nine times where I had forgotten I had said something. And the woman who was the director of the Office of Institutional Equity, she had it in an email or a recording, because students turned in recordings, had that in her possession at the time she was asking me. And when I denied it, she just moved on to the next item because she was going to use that. Another reason they fired me was because they claimed I provided false information during an investigation. So my failed memory, nine times out of over 100 questions, constituted providing false information during the interview. It's positively Orwellian. It sounds. I it, mean, it is. It, it was. sounds so. It sounds so. So going going back to six months later, a week before the spring of twenty one started, I got this notice saying they're firing me in six. Uh, I'm sorry. Seven business days, I think it was. And they gave me. They dropped in my lap. There, they finally let me see the investigative report which was 244 pages, 244 pages. Well, it you know, must be true then. That's right. If I had done something that's worthy of firing me, the report should have been three to five pages. Let me know what I did and you're fired. 244 pages, it just went on and on and on and on and on. It's just unbelievable. Anyway, so I had a private attorney, I still do, Samantha Harris, <clears throat> who's a constitutional lawyer that specializes specifically on free speech. So I shouldn't say broadly constitutional lawyer, but free speech specifically. We decided at the time, given that I had no income and had to sell my house really quickly and find a cheaper place to live, that it, probably, it was probably best to go through my union, the grievance process with a free attorney Challenge UCF. So I did that. Uh, it took um, a year and a half, a year and a half. 
and UCF hired these two external attorneys to represent them who were very vicious. I would say they were liars, but that's the job of an attorney to, to defend and protect uh, and promote whomever's paying you. So that's their job to be liars in some way. Not all attorneys are like that, but many are. And these two, these two clowns were, in my opinion, that's my opinion. Anyway, they just hammered on and on and on about how I violated the code of conduct by saying things that were offensive in class and offensive to minority groups, by the way, and religious groups. And I was saying, no, I'm just critiquing religion, critiquing minority groups, which is part of the pedagogy of my course. No, no, no you are offensive. And that violates our harassment discrimination policy. So that the hearing lasted four days and they were supposed to, both my union attorney, who by the way was excellent, just unbelievably excellent. Uh, he and the two UCF attorneys were supposed to turn in their written closing arguments to the arbitrator 30 days after they got the transcript from the court reporter. And three days before that deadline, UCF lost a lawsuit in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And that lawsuit was focusing on their harassment and discrimination policy. The problem is that harassment discrimination policy, the way they define it, is so broad, it's, it's also content and viewpoint discriminatory. So they were told to stop enforcing that policy effective immediately. That was April 21st. So UCF, knowing they had three days to turn in their report, they came up with some, they have an emergency. They didn't say what the emergency was, but they wanted an extension to turn in their report. So they, they were given a week extension. I'm sure they were scrambling, trying to figure out what to do now, because supposedly they're not supposed to enforce that policy. And yet that, that was a primary policy on which they wanted to hang me. So long story short, I'm, I'm sorry, I've taken probably more than five minutes on this. Um, UCF, their closing arguments just ignored, just ignored the 11th Circuit Court ruling and the fact that it even existed. And they continued on the line of, I'm, I'm offensive, I violated their policy, I deserve to be fired. So the arbitrator had 45 days to turn in his ruling. He turned his ruling in one week. And he said there was no just cause to fire me. He didn't really get into the details and take on every single charge of UCF. Um, so he just ruled that UCF violated my due process rights. And it was sort of silly, that's my words, not his, that they claimed I was such a danger in the classroom when for 22 years they're giving me outstanding and teaching every year <laughs> and giving me teaching awards, massive teaching awards. So he said there was no just cause to fire me, to reinstate me immediately and give me full back pay. So I know that a question is coming up is where to now St. Peter? And the answer is UCF has to quickly give me my back pay. And I've already been told by my union attorney that they're gonna to try to get me back on the schedule for classes in the fall. And I'm making it known to everyone that I'm filing a lawsuit really quickly. 
I can't reveal the legal strategy, but a lawsuit is coming. UCF knows it. And we'll see where it goes from there. Okay. And so when do you expect that that lawsuit will be filed? I'm guessing within the next four weeks. Okay. I'm not saying four weeks from now, but sometime between now and four weeks. For damages, presumably. I advise not to <clears throat> reveal the legal strategy. So Okay. All right. That's full up. So <laughs> you win. Right. Um, the, the scope of the victory isn't quite clear yet, but it's clear that you were vindicated. Um, the, before we talked today, I was reading some responses to it online. And as you might imagine, um, some of the leftists in academia are scandalized um, by this, uh, which I, I think should give you some great joy. Um, but I, I want to go back to you. You mentioned um, that in many ways you fit into a minority status. Um, and uh, I, I, we've talked before. I think if I remember right, your father was from Mexico. Is that right? Um, both my parents are from Texas, but my father was Mexican-American. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm Tex-Mex. Yes. And I'm gay. And I'm gay. Yes. Um, so No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Diversity, equity, inclusion simply proclaims is pro-minority. No, they're pro-ideology. And any minority who does not submit and conform, you are a heretic and they hate you. Yeah, I think uh, I, I call the um, Office of Diversity and Inclusion at my institution the Ministry of Love. Um, if you remember from, uh -huh. um, from uh, Orwell's 1984, the Ministry of Love is place you really really do not want to end up um so uh that's that's what i'll call them i think on this program too um but i wonder then you know you've been in higher ed for so you, you were at ucf for 22 years i think and then prior to that obviously you had been in universities and colleges for many years prior um do you feel like the university, not your university, but the university in general has changed over that time? Well, the first thing, which is, I actually tried to outline the chronology of this in my book, White Shaming. First thing that came on the scene was political correctness in the 80s. And when that happened, as I argued in my book, there was a legitimate reason for the complaints of minorities and women at that time. What was the complaint? That a lot of the literature, whether it's social scientific or in any other field, it doesn't matter, medical field, written about women were written by men. A lot of the literature written about blacks were written by whites. Same thing about gay people were written by heterosexuals, et cetera. So, these different groups, they typically do not, or they're not in, a, a, uh, in, in the same alliance. You know, black people have not traditionally supported gay people. Hispanics traditionally do not support black people and so on and so forth. But the, the um, what should I call them? Activists, researchers, professors, I don't know, from these different groups came together in the 80s and they joined forces. 
And their goal was to allow themselves to define themselves. You know, men should not be the ones necessarily, or at least not exclusively, defining women, and so on and so forth. I'm on board with that. I was on board with that. It was their tactic for bringing about that change that got us where, to where we are now, that's my thesis. And that tactic was the way to stop men from writing about women, even if what they're saying is correct, is to, to, if any man who continues writing about women issues, label him a sexist. That was the word then. Now it's misogynist, which is even worse. Mm-hmm. Any white person doing research on minorities or, or any journalist writing about minorities, call them a racist. And not just call it one time and let go of it. Try to contact their employer who camp out at their office and demand they be fired, et cetera. And it sent a fear up the spine of everyone. So what happened? Well, whites stopped writing about or commenting on minority issues. Men stopped commenting on women's issue. They got what they wanted, but they discovered something. They have newfound power. They had the power to get their way because if you call a, a white person a racist, they often crap in their pants. They're so f- terrified of that. Same thing with the other groups calling you a, a, a homophobe and, and really trying to make sure the public knows you are a homophobe. Most people was, would try to do whatever it takes to placate that group so that they go away. So they found a newfound power by weaponizing words and and they've been using it for 40 freaking years. <laughs> and you combine that phenomenon that I just described to you, this newfound power in the hands of minorities via weaponizing very damaging labels that most people will try to avoid if they can. Combine that with changing demographics, okay? So the, the, the militants, the activists, the researchers who are belong to different minority groups, gender or race or sexual orientation, it doesn't matter. Uh, they, were, they, were coming, they were coming more and more, becoming stronger, excuse me, becoming stronger. And uh, it all came to a head, it seems, with George Floyd's death. Uh, it was like, now is our time. Now is our time. Because whites were just overwhelmed with guilt seeing this image of this white cop posing for photos in the video with his knee on a black man's neck who's begging to be uh, let go of so he can breathe. And, And the white cop is posing as if he had just shot down a lion on a safari hunt or something. It just sent chills down everyone's spine and a large percent of whites just it just tapped into their white guilt like you wouldn't imagine. And that combined with these activists were already in the process of pursuing their agenda, which is anti-Western culture, anti-white um, ideology. So this all came to a head in the last with George Floyd. There was some kind of sea change there. Um, it was, I entered the university in 1996, and I think it's been, you know, it's always been a leftist institution, right? 
but I'm not sure that it has always been an activist institution. And I think that at this point, the, the universities, um, really the, whatever educational mission is left is secondary um, to uh, the, the political mission um, that is sort of uh, now the, the, really the substance of what you learn at um, school in many disciplines. So I guess my next question for you is if, if that's how we got here, is the university savable, right? Is, is oftentimes people say, well, we need to take back the universities, right? Do you think that can be done? I don't think it can be done. Now you're gonna die, right? So if it can't be done, if, it, if there's simply too much power consolidated there to wrest control back to sort of a, a sane educational um, mission, uh, sort of, I guess, politically neutral in, in some sense, then where do we stand? I mean, what do people who are, are sort of um, intellectually inclined or who want to do intellectual work uh, supposed to do in this atmosphere, right? Uh, if, if the institution can't be redeemed, well, do you stay and sort of be a pariah? Um, do you sort of abandon it and just go into another line of work? I mean, what, how, what's the, the plan here? So the reason I think there's no point that we're beyond the point of return as for the last 10 years or more, universities have been screening out professors who apply for jobs, either from their resume and their cover letter or during the interviews, who don't convey, who don't convey that they're on board with this embrace of minorities. Now, I don't want your viewer to get confused. I'm not anti-minority, not pro-white. I'm pro-everyone and everyone should be treated equally. And I believe in merit. But um, I mean, how long, how many, for how many years now have university been requiring job applicants to submit some type of diversity statement in their application? I think UCF has been doing that probably close to 10 years. And at UCF, University of Central Florida, they probably don't have it, at least when I was there, as of two years ago, they probably didn't have it as stringent as say UC Berkeley does right now. UC Berkeley, when you apply, a professor applies for a job, that resume and application material will be reviewed by some diversity committee that's not even in the department where they're applying. And that diversity committee will determine whether the person is adequately, more than adequately, excessively uh, exuberant over diversity and or equity. And if the, that committee decides they are, then they will forward their application materials to the department for consideration for hiring. But they don't convince that diversity committee that they're fully on board with this ideology the department will never even know they exist. Their, their application materials won't be forwarded over. That's an extreme example at UC Berkeley. I don't know if UCF is at that point yet, but I know every department 
requires a diversity statement when you're applying for a faculty job. And the committee is heavily involved in screening that and determining whether you, you're going to be a, a member of the church or not. <laughs> and so just imagine in the last 10 years, could be more than that, where we keep it, we've been hiring more and more professors who conform to this ideology and that they don't convey to us that they're willing to bow down to it, they don't get hired. So the percentage of universities that of the percentage of faculty who conform to this and embrace this ideology has just uh, blossomed. And so I don't think there's any hope with one exception. The exception is there's, there's two ways to go about this and it's gonna take time and effort and I don't know if it's possible. One is to have a, a governor like we have in Florida, DeSantis, who's aware of this problem and is willing to risk his or her political career by dying on this hill. Now, DeSantis in Florida has passed a Stop the Woke Act, an executive order, which stops this nonsense of scapegoating whites and romanticizing minorities and denigrating Western culture and denigrating the United States in K through 12. But he has stopped short of applying that to university because we have free speech. But he holds the purse strings, the purse strings, excuse me, to public universities. And each university, including UCF, has probably. I don't know, 50 to 100 people working in administration who are hired just to be some type of diversity enforcer. You know, they don't, they're not entitled to free speech. They're not teaching in the classes. They're enforcing this ideology. So he could, let it be known, fire them all immediately. Because if you don't, I'm gonna cut your budget like you've never seen your budget cut before. Uh, I don't know if DeSantis would do that, but that's one avenue by which governors could do that. But you have to keep in mind, half the country has, like California, <laughs> they don't have a governor who's going to do that. Neither does New York and so on and so forth. So yeah. while we're here, while we're here, because you've okay. reached the DeSantis topic, you're a Floridian gay guy. Um, DeSantis, uh, at least the national mainstream narrative would be that this is horrible. This don't say gay uh, bill that they've dubbed it. Um, what's your take? So it's not a don't gay, don't say gay bill. Um, so let's start. I'm not accusing you of this, but the opponents of it. Let's start with stop being liars and call it what it is. It's a parental rights bill. So here's the essence of this. This crap has just even infiltrated K through 12, and we got all these activists now teaching in K through 12, who want to tell students that just because you have a penis, that doesn't make you a boy. Now, you can tell a high schooler that, and the high school is probably sufficiently mature enough to say you're effing full of shit to say something stupid like that. But a kindergartner, a first grader, so the, the parental rights bill applies to K through three, just K through three. Mm -hmm. And I've raised two two children um, and when they were in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, there were two boys, by the way. If I, a teacher would have said such garbage to them like that, um, I would know, I, I'd be like, 
for starters, scheduling an appointment with a meeting with a principal and saying it is this crap either stops now or a lawsuit's coming. And these teachers, so back to this bill that you're referring to, is K through three, and it prohibits teachers from talking about sexual orientation, gender identity, or sex. Now, is it the case that we have children in these K through three who have gay parents? Sure, we have some. So it's reasonable in my mind, you're asking me for my opinion, for a teacher to say, no, I'm just mentioning here, Billy or Susie, whatever, uh, has two dads or whatever, and not make a big deal about it. And the kids would not make a big deal about it. But that's not what the teacher wants to do, these teachers. They want to have discussions about these issues with kindergartners and first graders and second graders and tell them things like, you know, you can change your gender wherever you want to, raw gender fluid, which that's not what school is about. Um, so I fully support the parental right bill, rights bill, and it should not come as a surprise to you that I don't conform to my group's ideology, whether it's Hispanics or, first off, we vary like everyone else, but I don't conform to the loud mouth militants who expect me to conform to them or else they would call me an Uncle Tomas. <laughs> Tio Tomas, which is Uncle Tom. Yes, I get it. Um, okay, so back to hold on before I lose my train of thought because you know no man and I have dementia. Uh, the other way we can possibly combat this ideology is through lawsuits. So there's some lawyers around the country who has who have the view, and they're really smart lawyers, that equity is illegal. It's just flat out illegal. You ask. Anyone who's supporting equity, define it. They're going to have to confess that it's showing preference for two groups, racial groups, over two other groups. And that's flat out unethical and illegal. So there are organizations like Pacific Legal, which is a, a law firm in California, which is looking for cases to take on to try to challenge diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then you got my case. I, I, there's some others like my case, but I'm, I'll mention mine. The dean sent out a letter to everyone, and I'm talking about thousands and thousands of people, saying my Twitter comments do not fall in line with the university's mission of diversity, equity, and inclusion. She didn't mention anything about classroom misconduct. So, that's compelled thought. That's compelled thought. And that violates the First Amendment of the Constitution. So people like myself need to be challenging their universities if they suffer any consequences, if they're denied a pay raise or promotion, or if they're expected to report on their annual review, what did they do to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion? If they're willing, they need to file a lawsuit. And of course, mm. oh, that's complicated. That's complicated filing a lawsuit. So only those who are really messed up like I've been are willing to go the extra mile and file a lawsuit. But that's the only way I think we're going to send a message that we have free speech. 
We have academic freedom as promised to us in all universities' policies, including private universities. And uh, two ways. So I, I got thinking about ways that uh, my university biases some of the faculty searches. And, um, you know, typically the search committee, when we have an open professorship, will uh, vet the applications. And then we'll get our slate of um, the, the top people who've applied, whether that's 10, 15 people, something like that. But before we can proceed with a further round for that group of applicants, we have to send that list to our DEI office. And they will assess the, the you know, when they fill out, the person fills out the application, they ask you all these demographic questions. They will assess whether the, the list of the, the finalists is sufficiently diverse. And if it is not, then they will come back to the search committee and say, well, there's not enough diversity here. We need to take some of these names off of, off of the list. Right. And th then, you know, like what you obviously who gets slotted back in is people who checks the right boxes, whether that's in terms of religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, um, sex or gender. Um, so there, there's that. And then there's, you know, there's a number of other ways that um, searches for professors are are gamed so that they can pro produce um, um basically new troops uh, for, for the DEI agenda and further for the social justice um, uh, agenda and society at large. Um, one thing that's interesting to me though about your case is my friends on the right, um, some of them, the, a popular idea is, well, we need to get rid of tenure. Uh, and um, I think in, in the state of Texas, there's some talk about this. I don't think that it's going to go anywhere. Um, but uh, this always puzzles me because I just think about this. If we, if we eliminated tenure, right, and it's just going to be, okay, well, there's just three-year renewable contracts or whatever that is, right, who do they think is going to get the contracts, right? Um, and on top of that, it seems to me that in your case, right, tenure is what saved you. Um, so I wonder if you have any, any sort of you know, feelings about the, the viability of tenure to serve um, for protection in, in the way that it's supposed to serve? So the people who are, quote unquote, on the right, who will advocate abolishing tenure, they suffer myopia. <clears throat> and they think that by getting rid of tenure, they'll be able to somehow get rid of the left-wing activist ideologues in academia. And they can only do that if the administration were to think like they do in terms of on their right side, their politically right side. So what they don't know is if we didn't have tenure, whomever has power at the administration level will get to pick just professors that they like. And of course that would be left, extreme left-wing people. So I don't think that's the route to go to try to fix this problem, abolishing tenure. We need, we forget, forget the culture war aspect for a moment, forget the political bickering. And I just wanna say that tenure allows scholars to address social issues, political issues, 
all kinds of issues, religious, economic, on a university campus and not have to worry about some group who doesn't like what they're saying, having the power to silence them or fire them. Because without that freedom to pursue whatever we desire, the university becomes a church. Churches, with all due respect to religious people, churches don't really advance societies, science, and universities do. So this is, you, you've made the point about um, sort of protecting this research into sort of touchy subjects. What interests me is that it, the, the left tends to um, say this is really important, but it's really work like yours uh, with white shaming or work like mine in my book, Metanoia, where I talk about trans issues. That's the work that, that you know, is really edgy. Like the, the 50th academic book this month on why slavery is bad like that they nobody needs to worry about any consequences from that right so this is one of the things that surprised me because it's like the the people who are on board with the woke agenda have actually no real you know concerns about um any any backlash from wrong think right it's only the people who 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 are taking the odd perspective, the, the um, minority perspective that, that really have any of this risk. And so it would seem, again, that it, it, you know, it would be people who are producing ideas that are dissenting ideas who need the protection. This is why I don't understand the, what t Dan Patrick in Texas is trying to do. Oh, uh, I think he's a politician, right? Yeah. So just don't lose sight of the fact that politicians will say and do anything if they think it's going to help their political career. But for, for forget politicians for a moment. Again, people on the right or conservatives who think we need to get rid of tenure, again, they're just seeing the situation right, right now with, with left-leaning people in power and they want to get rid of them. They don't understand it could go both ways, depending on who's in power at any given point. So in the past, we might have had conservative administrators like 40, 50 years ago who wanted to get rid of left-leaning people. We shouldn't not allow that to happen. And now that all the liberal left people are in charge um, and they like to get rid of conservative voices on campus, we shouldn't allow that to happen. So tenure serves a purpose. It, it goes beyond the culture wars and the political wars. Well, yeah, but we just talked a few minutes about uh, how you were saying it can't be redeemed. The university can't be redeemed. So what we had was in the past, this kind of pendulum of the institutional culture of the university. And when it was not on your side, you say, well, it'll swing back. It was conservative. Now it's leftist, right? But it sounds like what we're saying is, no, the pendulum's froze now. It's frozen. It's not going to swing back, right? So I wasn't around universities 50 years ago. Yeah. I don't know the extent to which they were screening out liberal slash left-leaning professors. I do know <laughs> the last 30 years, we've been screening out right-leaning conservatives, and it has just hit... Uh, just gone beyond our imagination in terms of screening out 
conservative, right-leaning, politically people. So I do think, I don't see much hope for universities in the future. I don't. And I think what's going to happen, I mean, you're asking me to look in, I mean, maybe you're not asking me, but um, if you're asking, if you're asking me to look into a crystal ball and give you my prediction of the future, I think places like China and India that don't have this bullshit going on and they value scholarship. Now, I understand that in the case of China, they won't value scholarship that criticizes the government. But apart from that, in terms of science, military and so on, they value scholarship and merit. And I think they will come to dominate if we don't fix this crap that we're in. And I'm not sure we're going to fix it. Yeah. That's what I think might happen in the future. So a 27-year-old student in, in, uh, you know, humanities or social science discipline today um, who might have some ideas that don't conform to the academic consensus, what would your, your advice be for that kid who, who is contemplating a, an academic career? Uh, the first thing I would say is there's no jobs for you. My son is getting a PhD in history. No jobs. There's no jobs. I mean, like, no jobs. Um, so... I would say to them, as much as I, I, I used to tell people, my philosophy is don't worry about jobs or how much you can earn from a, a given field because life is short. You should do what makes you happy. And if you go into a, into a discipline that you're happy about and it happens to not pay well, that's okay because you're doing what you enjoy in life. It's like you're never going to work. You, you, your work is actually something you enjoy. But I have changed my mind on that a little bit because we all need to eat. And most of us want to have a roof over our heads. And if there really aren't many jobs for English majors, history majors, sociology majors, I mean, I know people major in sociology, they're working at a bank, working at Best Buy. So these are kind of dead fields, which is unfortunate because if they were if they stayed true to the mission and not had an ideological agenda, they have something to offer people. But having given the situation we're in, to answer your question, I would be telling that person, I hope you're going into something that's related to the medical field or STEM, engineering, computer science, math. Yeah, it seems like psychology might be the one place that is safe. I mean, that seems to be booming. Um, at least it is at my university. I, I chalk that up and you, you might say I'm wrong, but I chalk that up to sort of the modern cult of the self, right? Students get into psychology because they think, oh, you know, I can, I can, why am I like this? I want to learn about my mind. And it's, it's very sort of solipsistic, either that, or they're really into sort of TV crime drama, um, and true crime. And, and they're like, oh, I want to get inside the mind of the, the serial killer, um, I think that somehow like we've, we've reached a, a sort of um, midwit sweet spot in our society where uh, psychology is, is positioned to sort of soak up a lot of, a lot of students here. Am I wrong? So 
<laughs> You're talking to someone who has a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in psychology. I know. <laughs> you also know that I'm a straight shooter and I'm not an ideologue. So I'm going to say half of psychology, I'm, I don't know if it's 50%, I'm just saying half of psychology, their research is nonsense. They're doing research that comes to a, a predetermined conclusion. Okay. So half of the research in psychology is just silliness. And I think there is, or there are components, different fields in psychology that are, they're all tainted by diversity, equity, inclusion. There's no escaping of that at this point in time. But that said, I think there are some areas in psychology, clinical psychology at the PhD level, not the master's, um, IO psychology that uh, still have something to offer society. So people with PhDs in clinical psychology and IO, industrial organizational psychology, I'm sorry to use IO, it's industrial organizational psychology. They tend to be well-trained in statistics and research methodology. And you, you can get ideologues in those two groups, um, but you can also get people who are good scholars too. And so master's degrees in psychology come the dime a dozen. I wouldn't want to be trying to get a job with a master's in psychology. But back to one of your points, yeah, psychology is one of those fields where people think it's sexy. They think it's sexy and empowering. They can read people's minds or whatever. First off, because it's such a popular field that creates a competition that's just off the charts. And so to even get into a PhD program at a legitimate university, uh, this to get in, you have to almost walk on water academically because the competition is just over the top. Um, so psychology's recently had um, some trouble as discipline because of the replication crisis. And yeah, I'm sure yeah. that you're aware of that. To mm -hmm. what extent would you say that the replication crisis is a product of predetermined ideological commitments that research is supposed to advance? I mean, I think, and I might be wrong because I don't read all, you know, a lot of the psychological research, but it seems to me that much research that comes out of psychology basically supports the secular liberal status narrative of how the world ought to be. And I think that when you have so many people in a discipline who've just decided, yes, this is what my research is supposed to do is to provide support for a certain kind of, of regime. Right. Well, then, of course, I mean, there's other drivers, like, for example, like the pressures of publication and things like this. But I think that that it, you know, I think that has to play a role. Just the fact that they've they've got their, their sights set on a particular star and the research is going to get there one way or another. And, you know, um, then it's like, well, of course, people can't replicate the study because the study was always structured in such a way that it could only possibly produce that outcome. And if you ch change any of the variables at all, you know, like you can't reproduce it. Okay, so I wanna remind you that I said roughly half of all psychology studies are nonsense. <laughs> and they're nonsense because they're doing studies that give them the answers that they were looking for all along, just so they can run out and say, we have science on our side, we have data. Of course, it's junk data. Um, so 
that was a pretty broad brush. I said half, you know, I don't know if it's really 50%, but that's a pretty condemnation, a strong condemnation of psychological research. The other thing is, in the past, these studies that were classic studies that today have been uh, redone and they weren't able to get the similar results. I, I have some familiarity with those specific studies from the past because they're classic studies in psychology. I don't think the researchers were promoting an agenda. I think they just wanted to make a name for themselves because the pressure is on to publish and become famous. And so if you don't do that, you're not gonna get tenure. And today you may not get grants, et cetera. And so there's enormous pressure to produce research that somehow is going to distinguish you so that you get promoted and tenured and become famous and get grants, et cetera. So there's some dysfunction in that system that's problematic. And I don't know, I haven't thought about what might be the remedy for that. But so I, I do think there's a difference. I'm trying to make a uh, qualified difference between studies that were done where the researchers weren't pushing an ideological agenda other than come up with some cool study that makes them famous versus today where easily half the studies are done by ideologues who are pushing for their, whatever their agenda is, which typically is a, a liberal, socially liberal agenda. Right. So I, I point this out to my students when I talk that, you know, half of psychology is junk. And you got professors who are just engaging in what we call confirmation bias research, confirmation bias, where you're just trying to confirm what you already believe. And so uh, you have to be a, a, a real skeptic when you look at any study. Into, and now that DEI is infiltrating medical school, you know, birthing people and all that shit. Uh, and so many medical doctors who are willing to prescribe puberty blockers to minors because they don't want to be called a transphobe and have all the transgender mafia and uh, descend upon them. So now you have to be very, even more cautious than ever or more skeptical than ever of medical research. And COVID, COVID, you know, because yeah. I don't even know what to believe anymore about COVID because I hear people who say all kinds of things, medical doctors, Hear me because you froze on me yeah i can hear you okay um and then you have people who are also medical doctors who say the things that the others are saying in medical and who are medical doctors is not right and so it's just a it's a difficult time it's a difficult time for someone who really wants truth to be able and you got the social media where internet where Anything can be said and probably ought to be said. I don't think I'm not in favor of restricting people's speech, but it's just a real difficult time to try to get at truth if you're concerned with getting at truth. Well, that would be my advice. If there was a 27 year old who was really cared about truth, who was pursuing an academic job, my advice would consist of run. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think that there's much of it to be found in higher ed anymore. Well, Charles. You're victorious, man. I, I think uh, I think that I'm I'm happy that it's worked out this way for you. I think that this will send a message to universities. Um, you know, there's been some other cases that are similar to yours that have 
happened since yours um, occurred. And I hope that, that the institutions are taking pause and, and realizing that this can really hurt uh, when they, they try to pursue this avenue. Um, and I commend you for, for fighting it and for staying sane in the, the two years that you sort of had to sit on your hands and, and wait for this stuff. Um, and I hope you make them pay here um and give give uh my regards to your your uh your colleagues um <laughs> well thank you for having me um and my goal is again not to get rich off this which i won't by the way but just to clear my name to the best that i can and to send a message to at least ucf to back off and professors and students have free speech and academic freedom and don't mess with Texas, so to speak. <laughs> well, you're like a prize fighter. I, I admire you, man. Thanks very much. Thank you. You take care.